Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm glad to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, our first in 2024, we'll discuss how work may evolve over the coming year, including the ongoing prevalence of so-called gig work, the share of employment concentrated in the public sector, and the prospects for working from home or a return to pre-pandemic norms when it comes to where and how we work. Amanda, I hope that you had a nice holiday. It's great to be back in conversation with you. Good to see you. I mentioned gig work in my introduction. December's labor force survey, which was released last week, showed large year-over-year increases in the number of gig workers doing ride-sharing or delivery work. Almost half of those doing this kind of work are concentrated in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, and more than half are new immigrants. What's your reaction to those numbers? Yeah, I was uh, intrigued by them. It's a huge increase. And actually, it means now, uh, you know, in the case of delivery, it's uh, 270,000 people. And in the case of uh, of, uh, drivers, 135,000. Those are meaningful sectors, right? That that rivals some other important sectors of our economy. Uh, And we have, of course, allowed this, um, the gig part of our economy to be quite organic. And so we've played a bit of catch up with regulations and um, how these people are treated in terms of their employment status. Um, and I think this really kind of puts the puts the point on that we better pay attention. This is not just a few you know kids in their spare time. This is a, a huge and meaningful part of the economy. I'll tell you something, one, one other thing that jumped out at me is uh, it's new Canadians, of course, um, because this is a, a highly flexible and uh, low barrier to entry part of the economy. But I was struck by, so half of 57% immigrants, but 70% uh, racialized. So you put kind of the those two things together, and I would say you might be dealing with also a very vulnerable part of the population. I'm, I say might because maybe not. It could be, you know, a chunk of these people are uh, working other jobs, and this is, a, you know, a secondary source of income, et cetera, because this is a highly flexible part of our labor force that we prize. But it just it struck me that, you know, the need to kind of make sure we're managing the regulatory aspect of the gig economy is even more important because you've got new Canadians, you've got racialized Canadians. Let's make sure that we're not seeing abuse happen here. Let me just add another layer of complexity, because as policymakers are thinking about the rise of of gig work and more unconventional forms of work more broadly, they also need to account for the fact that you know people like you and I are, are gig workers in the sense that we we may not have conventional employee employer relationships with it with a single employer. What do you think about the evolution away from conventional forms of employment and its implications for the economy and public policy? 
Well, I think um, it's an important point you're making, which is that at, that the, it crosses the spectrum of types of work. And where that becomes important, I think economically, A, how we talk about it and capture the data might start to get messy. So when we talk about the, the employment picture that stats can, that labor force survey that you talked about, it's always been kind of a clumsy instrument. You probably know that better than anyone, having uh, spent the time you did making policy in Ottawa. But it, it, it's this kind of blunt, broad instrument of self-reporting, and it's a bit messy. I think the, the point you're making is it will get more so, because is it capturing properly the types of work, the places of work? So maybe the unemployment number is even less accurate than it has been in the past. The other kind of thread I would say we could throw in there that's important about this is it does affect kind of pensions, retirement savings, um, your relationship with the employer. It goes back to the gig em employees where there's been this big fight of are they classified as employees just to give them protections like sick days um, or when they should be paid versus when they're not paid to give them a little more power. And I guess what I would say is as we see more people opting for this kind of piecemeal work, we may be seeing people opt out of formal retirement plans, and that, of course, will also become of collective interest. Yeah, again, uh, great insights there. And as you say, it really runs the spectrum from possibly vulnerable workers to people who are self-selecting out of conventional work, and, and you know because it may be more lucrative or they're preferencing flexibility or whatever. And and so the, the challenge for policymakers is to, I think, think critically about the different issues along the spectrum and not succumb to a, a single definition. We're all not Uber drivers, but we're also not, you know, contract CEOs. There's a, a, a ton of diversity in that group. The one area I've been thinking about, about public policy as it relates to these types of questions a, a bit about is the significant dependence we have on employer-provided health and dental benefits as a, a kind of key part of how we finance healthcare in our country. You know, something like 80% of Canadians have some form of drug and uh, health benefits that oftentimes comes from one's employer. The government presently, as you know, Amanda, is thinking about a national pharmacare system, which is really trying to serve that share of the population, which presently isn't getting health and dental benefits either from an employer or through some kind of public plan. But it, it seems to me as the share of the population uh, moves to some form of unconventional work, and possibly that leads to a decline in the share of the workforce receiving health and dental benefits from their employer. It may, on one hand, strengthen the case for pharmacare, at least in the minds of its proponents, or it may require some other policy response, like, for instance, increasing support for individuals to go about acquiring health and dental benefits on their own. But either way, you know, one can kind of peer into the future and see a world in which our dependence on employers providing drug and health benefits may no longer be something we can count on anymore. And, and once you kind of accept that premise, then there's a whole host of different ways in which the, the kind of experience of, of work that you and I, in a way, personify could really change a whole host of ways in which we've kind of depended on a conventional employee-employer relationship in Canada. Yeah, I think you're making um, the really important observations about how we're evolving um, collectively, our relationship to our employer. My hope would be that we learn from our past mistakes. And the, to me, the kind of single biggest error that was made uh, was when we sort of allowed the shift away, allowed, but when policies kind of opened the door for a shift away from employees demanding pensions. In other words, that was part of the deal. Uh, and, and we kind of moved over to the system of, 
you know, we'd have RSPs, we'd have tax incentives, we would have other ways that we could save on our own. It created this opportunity for employers to opt out. And many of them did or reduced the, the, the value of the, of what they were offering in a variety of ways. Um, but we didn't see our wages go up in a commensurate way. You know, we should have said that we used to be paid now and later. Um, if we're going to be paid only now, that's a significant, especially when you factor in the time value of money, it should be, it should have been a significant increase in wages. Never happened. If we do the same thing with things that used to be treated like, um, extras, right? Like perks. Well, now we know dental care is far from a perk. It's not cosmetic. It's not, it shouldn't be considered to be, um, some kind of, you know, frivolous add on. We know because of gut health and the importance of it and that you're, you know, there's a direct correlation. Um, it's, I sound like I'm talking for the Canadian Dental Association right now, but you know, I think the science is all there. Dental uh, care, basic care is a, is as important as almost every other piece of the, of our kind of physical well being. So maybe government should provide it, Sean. I don't know what you think. Maybe it just actually should be part of kind of the, the, the survey of offerings that is included in our healthcare system, but let's not let employees off the hook. They're covering the cost now. If we take it out of the equation, boy, they should either pay it to the government, pay it to us in our wages. If we just let them off, we're going to be in big trouble from a tax-based point of view. And same with pharmacare, right? So I think you're making, again, because you were in those rooms, are they doing that? Are they, are they walking through that math in Ottawa and making sure we don't create this gap-gaping hole that that companies rush and just fill with profit? Because that's that would be a mistake. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday, a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. Yeah, one thing they are focused on in Ottawa these days is the, the growth of the federal government's employment footprint itself. We have a new report out from the Public Service Commission that tells us it's grown by 40% since 2014-2015. What do you make of this growth and its possible consequences? I mean, I, well, I'll start by saying one of the first things that drew me to the hub was the work you folks were doing on this. I hadn't seen it anywhere else. Um, and this is nonpartisan. This is just the facts, ma'am. Uh, we have seen this massive increase in employment. And the point that was made um, so well by you and others uh, was that the vast majority of job creation through and after the pandemic were government jobs. Now, there are a couple of things that we all know now, um, and this is problematic, is as you might expect spending on those personnel has also ballooned. So it's up 30 percent from 22 to 23 but we also know, thanks to our Auditor General, that spending on outside experts was up 17 billion in the same period. And so now there's this great kind of question of why are we spending more internally and spending more externally? And, you know, we did this series on government. Um, and one thing we heard from people like Michael Warnick is you need your internal experts. There's nothing wrong with relying on outside expertise. Uh, and, and people in government will tell you that you should and, and it should always be true that you can go out and, and source the best voice or view or brain on something. But there's also a case to be made for developing it internally. 
are we doing both? Why are we doing both? Um, so that that's, I guess, the, the numbers just kind of leave you thinking, are we just bloating up here or, or, or are we getting value for it? Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's precisely the right question. You're not, not the first one and certainly won't be the last one to point out that we've seen this increase in the size of the federal public service at the same time that we've seen a growing reliance on outside contracts, and including some pretty high profile ones like the Arrive Can app, which, of course, is an example of outside consulting work going badly. So I, I do think that this question of how to balance um you know, relying on the core public service versus going out and, and getting that expertise is is something that I think we'll we'll hear more about. One of the things we've talked a bit about at the hub lately, Amanda, including with you, is this question of state capacity. And a bigger government isn't necessarily a more effective or efficient one. I think that's probably the 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 right way to think about these issues. But I want to put one other data point from this public service commission report, which struck me, and that is that the sheriff federal public servants concentrated in Ottawa has risen to nearly 50%, which is considerably higher than it was, say, four years ago, and much higher than many of our peers. What, in your mind, are the consequences of concentrating such a large share of the federal government in the national capital region? So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that jumped out at me, too. Um, and, you know, so we start by saying, OK, we're comparing ourselves to our peers. So you think that places like Germany or France or is that a good comparison? Uh, well, boy, we have this vast country and one of the aims of our federal government, surely, um, I don't know if this is written down anywhere, but I think I think it is, is to knit it together, right, is to create the frameworks that make uh, the Atlantic provinces connected to British Columbia. And one way we've always done that, or at least in the last, I don't know, 50 years, is to have government representation, federal government representation across the country. So if you need government services, they're available to you close by, there's a human being or sometimes we actually locate, you know, physical plant uh, somewhere. So if you're trying to reach Canada Post, um, I, I can't remember—is it Miramichi? It's the, the headquarters are, are Sudbury. Um, they're they're located in places where, and and you say, oh, that's just a kind of a regional political grab, or you could say that's a way to create federal representation and access to services across the country. So when I saw that number, I was like, whoa. So are we speeding up efficiency? Are we creating faster service for people who don't live in Gatineau? Because we're now concentrating more and more people just in Ottawa. And then it's and then I've gosh, I've wondered what Ottawa feels like these days. It's a company town. Uh, is it losing its vibrancy? Or are you losing your entrepreneurs? There's sort of that that fact. But I, I cared more about yeah how the how the delivery of government services and how Canadians feel about government is affected by that. And I think that's important. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I would say two things in response. The service delivery, and I think all things being equal, proximity is is key to um, to delivering efficient and effective services to people. But there's also policymaking. You know, at the heart of policymaking, Amanda, is the capacity for empathy to effectively put yourself in the shoes of the people you're you're making policy for. And, you know, we I think we should be blunt about it. The public servants working in the national capital region are not a representative group. I mean, they are disproportionately bilingual. They are, are disproportionately have graduate degree. I mean, the, the kind of list goes on in the way, ways in which it, they are not representative of the country as a whole. So if you're producing public policy on Atlantic fisheries or the British Columbia's forestry sector. Or what Alberta truckers think about COVID, right? 
Precisely. I do think there is a risk that we end up with something of a, a kind of eco chamber in the Ottawa Gatineau area. It's not to cast aspersions on on public servants. I think it is a, a kind of question of representativeness and, and, and proximity. And I would just say, you know, kind of counterintuitively, I think they many people in Ottawa understand this. And then the way that they go about trying to solve for it is the elaborate and time consuming and in, inefficient consultative process. And so one wonders if you couldn't find some trade-offs and possibly even kind of efficiencies by rethinking the federal footprint and making sure it's more representative. I would just say one final point, one can't help but think it would also have a kind of positive effect on on trust if people see people working in the government that they that look like them and have had experiences like them. And in fact, depending on where they live, maybe even people that they know. And so I, 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 you know, this might be a subject we want to come back to later on, because I, I, I do think we, we don't want to get to a place where Ottawa becomes a bit of a fortress looking out at the rest of the country making policy. I, I think that's a, a kind of unhealthy, um, un- unhealthy way to make sure that, as you say, the country uh, feels um, connected to um, uh, our, our national government. I, I think I think all of that is so sound. And I, I, I hope and assume that uh, folks in Ottawa, you know, when a, any organization gets large uh, and we see this with companies, there are people inside the organization dedicated to the system itself. And that's true in Ottawa. It is a learning organization. It is a you know, it's dedicated to that. There's very smart people. I hope they're thinking about these things, especially now when we have very divisive policy issues ahead of us. And, you know, the, the, the green transition being front and center, we see what's happening. We see disenfranchised populations. Um, I think you're right. There's some really easy, easy, are they easy? I don't know. But there are some kind of obvious ways to knit us together. And I do hope, uh, let's revisit. I do hope that that's going on. Yeah, and I was just saying parentheses, it, there's also a potential savings to be had here. You know, think about Queen's Park in Toronto. We have the nucleus of Ontario's public service concentrated in the, in the province's highest cost city. Um, and, and so I think that the Ford government has, I wouldn't describe it as a as a methodical or thoughtful plan, but it has experimented at different times with um, decentralizing part of, of the government. Not only does it have the conceptual benefits of the representativeness as we've been talking about, but there may be ways also to um, free up some, some resources for the government and free up space for other parts of our economy and society. Another question that impinges on this this idea of of space is work from home or the the prospect for a growing trend to be back in the office. Uh, Amanda, we did predictions at the hub for 2024. And one of my predictions was I thought we'd see a decline in the work from home model over the coming 12 months. Do, do you agree? And, and if so, do you think that's a that represents a good development? So I absolutely agree. I think, though, it will be spiky. Um, and I think you will see um, competing forces. The biggest force I believe that's driving this is uh, a, a, it's a sectoral economic one. And that is there's just too much embedded, embedded legacy capital cost in having people in offices. Uh, and, and, you know, by that, I mean, if we all worked the way we wanted to, which would be, you know, we wouldn't really go in, um, it would be a collapse of the commercial real estate market. And that would have, you know, attendant dire consequences for their 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 financiers, including our six biggest banks. And so the, the so it was no surprise to me that investment banks, uh, the big banks themselves, and anybody kind of related to uh, commercial real estate said back in the office at least three days a week. Now that was important, Sean, because if they could, they would have said five. Uh, but 
that that two day a week wiggle room is a reflection of just I think the sheer force of will of workers, especially younger workers who don't know anything different, who say, why does work need to ruin my life? If we can make this work better for everybody, let's keep doing it. And so those I see those forces colliding. Um, where and I don't know if you if you know this or not, but I just learned yesterday. I hope this isn't <laughs> secret information. But uh, the National Post has closed down its newsroom. Uh, so so they all of the reporters and uh, and editors who work on one of the country's most important newspapers, national newspapers, will do it remotely. As somebody who grew up in newsrooms, who became a journalist because of a newsroom, I walked through the Globe and Mail newsroom and was entranced by the energy and the authority and the value of what was going on there, and who thinks story meetings are the most fun you can have uh, with your clothes on, I think uh, that is a terrible, terrible thing. I think it's a shame. I think it's bad for young journalists. I think it's bad for journalism. Uh, but I get it. I get it. Nobody wants to be there and they're paying for an empty building. Wow, what a what a slam dunk to get rid of that cost off your balance sheet. The longer term consequences of that will, you know, they'll emerge. So I think places where businesses that can do it might do it for the wrong reasons. Businesses that are forcing people back to work are kind of doing it for the wrong reasons. I will muddle along here until we find some middle ground, I guess. Let me wrap up with a, a question about a broader labor market trends. There's some evidence that the market is tightening employment was unchanged in December, but the employment rate itself fell a bit. There's also renewed concern about household debt levels and people tapping into their savings. What's your read on the outlook for the labor market? Should we expect unemployment to rise? And if so, to go back to our first topic, will we see a continued rise in gig work as people aim to earn a bit of income in a slow or even contracting economy? So interesting to see really anemic job growth. Not not surprising. The economy is anemic. It's going to stay anemic right through 2024 and beyond. So even though we get growth, it's going to be bad, even by Canadian standards for a couple of years. So you don't get strong employment growth necessarily in that environment. So that's not shocking. I was a bit shocked by the wage growth that continues, right? 5.8% is bad for the Bank of Canada. It's bad for inflation, but it's great for workers. So the workers that have jobs are getting more pay. Uh, that probably means fewer job jobs for others, right? That's how that works. Companies don't have an endless amount of uh, of uh, payroll to go around. So uh, that probably means they'll make those workers do more. Could be good for productivity. I hope that it is. Um, but I would expect unemployment to go up, especially because we do have, of course, household formation going up at such a clip. Um, it's almost inevitable that we're going to see unemployment go up. Uh, does that matter? I don't know. To your, to your, I think to your, your point, we should be looking at the type of work people can do, starting businesses, um, doing gig work. It can be precarious. We've got to watch for that. But it can also be quite liberating and, um, and, a, and an entree to economic kind of independence. So uh, it may be a whole new era upon us on that front. Well, what a great way to wrap up our first conversation in 2024. Amanda, I want to thank you for joining me. And I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Great to talk. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a review and rating. You can also access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub, 
or The Hub Canada, or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Fletch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. 